Hey, everybody, and welcome to Learning from Smart People. I am your host, Rob Oliver, and I am joined by Doug Knoll for the podcast today. Doug Knoll is a JDMA. He has, is an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and highly experienced mediator. He is called to serve humanity, and he executes his calling on many levels. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rob. Great to be here. Absolutely. I, lo I, I love your show, Smart People. That's great. I don't know whether I'm smart, but... <laughs> yeah. So people that listen to the show on a regular basis may tire of me hearing uh, of hearing me say this, but my premise is this. Everybody is smarter about some topic than I am. And the way for me to become smarter is to listen to people who know more than I do. And so uh, that's what I, my goal is to bring in people who know something that I don't and they can educate me and make me a smarter person, which then is going to help me run my business better. It's going to help me run my life better. And it's going to ultimately have a positive impact on me. So, uh, you are smarter than me when it comes to mediation. So we're, we'll go with that. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So tell me your backstory a little bit. Like, how did you get to where you are today and start doing what you're doing? Well, I um, grew up in Southern California and I was unfortunately born with a lot of disabilities that I really struggled through with childhood and, and adolescence. And it, but I was gifted with this, uh, an intelligent mind and ended up graduating from high school and going to Dartmouth College. Uh, and then after Dartmouth, came back to California. And in those days, if you didn't go to meds, if you were an Ivy League and you didn't go to med school, you usually went to law school. So I went to law school. <laughs> and I enjoyed law school and did well academically. Uh, I graduated and moved to Central California, clerked for an appellate judge for a year, and then was hired as a young associate at a firm that specialized in commercial litigation and bankruptcy. And they groomed me to be a big time commercial trial lawyer. And that's what I did. I tried my first jury trial two months after joining the firm. And my second jury trial was defending a $36 million securities fraud case in the Southern District of California in San Diego for seven months. Um, so that's what I did for the next 22 years. In the mid 80s, I picked up the martial, I started studying the martial arts and um, I was awarded my second degree black belt on my 40th birthday. And my teacher told me to go study Tai Chi. He was done with me. I was too arrogant. <laughs> so I started studying Tai Chi and that turned out to be a life-changing endeavor because Tai Chi has two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second, the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Mm. Soft, be strong, vulnerable, be powerful. Well, at first, these paradoxes did not make sense, but eventually they seeped into my soul. And so one day in the late 90s, I was trying a case and I thought that I was cross-examining somebody and I said, what the heck am I doing in here? And that caused me to reevaluate my career as a trial lawyer. And ultimately, I decided that I didn't want to do this work anymore. And I went on a river trip a whitewater trip with a bunch of friends and really spent the week thinking about this. And it, when I came back, I was driving into the, my office in Fresno uh, out of the mountains. And I heard a public service announcement for a new master's degree program in peacemaking and conflict studies. And so I enrolled. And for three years, I was a full-time 
graduate student, a three-quarters time law professor at our local law school, and a full-time trial lawyer. And ultimately, uh, I could not come to agreement with my partners on the direction I wanted to take my practice, and I quit. And walked away from $10 million and opened up my peacemaking practice. And that's kind of how my life really started. Uh, at, on my 50, right after my 50th birthday, I walked away and, and began a whole new career as a peacemaker and mediator. Yeah, very, very powerful story from the perspective of uh, you, you're in a trial attorney thing. And, and the idea there is you're going into court and one side prevails and one side loses. And now you've changed the paradigm. You say, okay, how do we do peacemaking where we find something that works for both sides? And I find that to be interesting, but I want to go back to something that you started with. Okay. Um, Listen, I'm a person with a disability. So one of the reasons, one of the things that really appealed to me about having you on is talking about you were born with some, some issues. Uh, can, yeah. you, can you talk a little bit about that of course. and talk about how that has impacted your, your life journey? I was born with two club feet, almost blind, partially deaf, bad teeth, and left-handed. <laughs> i couldn't walk until i was three years old i had two i had three surgeries to correct my my club feet radical surgeries and uh i was in for the rest for 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 many 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 years i was i was um in a lot of physical pain just walking but i and it, it, it wasn't until the fourth grade People couldn't understand why I was not doing well in school. In the fourth grade, a school nurse decided to test my vision, duh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and found that I had, my vision was 2400. I was blind. And so I got these big Coke lens glasses and plastic frames. That was the original nerd glasses. Right. Uh, the, the problem I had was, I, although I grew up in affluence and had parents who loved me, nobody really knew how to deal with a kid like me. Super smart, but physically disabled, big, I'm a big man. Uh, and, and, you know, in our family, it was all about athletics and academics. And my younger, I was the oldest of four boys. My brother, brothers were all great, really good athletes. And I turned out to be a swimmer because that's the only thing I could really do with my legs. Um, but I had uh, a lot of emotional problems. Hmm. The, the physical disabilities were painful and it just, but you know, and I just couldn't do stuff that other kids could do. And for me, it was, just, that was just normal. <laughs> you know? I mean, right. you know, I just, and so I just dealt with it and slowly over the years, I was able to overcome just about everything. Uh, but it was a, it was a lot of pain, uh, a lot of frustration, you know, and, 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 and the question that you ask is how did it, how did it affect me? It affected me this way. One of the things that I experienced in my younger years were coaches who would did not tolerate me they didn't have the patience to teach me Mm. and it really pissed me off because i did need a lot of coaching and i needed coaching in a very special way because i was not able to do stuff like normal kids i couldn't play i tried playing little league baseball couldn't i wasn't even close to doing it um you know tried to teach me tennis you know, I'm left-handed. They're trying to teach me right-handed tennis with a bad, bad legs. I mean, they were just, they, they had no patience for me. If they weren't teaching kids who were normal and gifted, they didn't want to mess with them. Hmm. And so I 
swore to myself that I would be, if I became a teacher, I would be somebody who would teach a completely different way. And the thing that came from that was I learned how to teach myself. And for example, uh, one of my avocations today is jazz violin. And when I'm taking on some very difficult Everything about jazz violin is difficult. <laughs> I was going to say, but, I, mean, I can't imagine jazz violin but, being easy, but yes. No, but, but, but whenever, I, whenever I, like right now I'm working on really mastering a, a very common jazz progression called the 2-5-1 chord progression. And without getting into all the technical details, the way I approach learning something new is how would I teach this? Breaking it down piece by piece by piece. So even the most clueless person could master it. And that's what I really took from all of this is learning how to learning how to break things down into very small, discrete pieces that made a lot of sense. What's impossible today is only difficult next week. And then in three months, it's why was this so hard? Um, and, and that's what I that's what I took away from all of this. OK, what you just said is a mouthful. What's impossible? <laughs> what's impossible today is difficult next week and in three months. It's why was this so hard? I, amazing. And, and, and listen, I'm coming at this from a, a similar perspective, and that is nobody ever achieved greatness by focusing on what they can't do. And it's how do you take the skills and abilities that you have and do something worthwhile and amazing with them? And part of that to me is, you know, finding an outlet for it, a creative outlet. So your jazz violin, a very creative outlet that utilizes the skills and abilities that you have. Um, and I also feel like there is, for me, a desire to make the world a better place. Oh, yes. And so as such, I'm looking, how do I use the skills and abilities that I have to make a positive impact on the people around me? And it Absolutely. sounds like you and I are very much on the same page with that. Yeah. I mean, the, what I learned, the reason that I left the practice of law is I wasn't serving people. Mm. And when I became a peacemaker and had got my earned my master's degree in peacemaking and complex studies, it gave me the opportunity to serve people in a very deep way. And that is, to me, that is the deep meaning of life. You want to find meaning in your life. It's not working nine to five. It's learning how to serve people. Bingo. Um, you, you hit it on the nose. I, to, I'm sure this is not where I was intending to go with this conversation, <laughs> but uh, um, I'll tell you a quick story. Okay. And that is, I was in the hospital. I, I'm in the hospital more than I would like to be and was feeling very bad for myself because this was like my fourth or fifth hospital visit within a, I don't know, eight month period. And nobody was coming to visit me. And I like, I try and be the encouragement and here I am needing encouragement and I'm stuck by myself and no one's there. And I'm a person of faith and I feel like the, you know, God said to me, like, well, okay, so what are you doing? And it's like, your cell phone's sitting there. What, why don't you call somebody? And so it was in that moment I had an opportunity. I called somebody um, to encourage them, and it turned out to, to be the beginning of something very, very powerful. But it was that understanding that when I look inward and say, why, what am I missing? I feel empty. But when I look outward and say, what need can I serve? What role can I fulfill? How can I make, how can I invest in other people? The dividends that you reap from investing in other people are lifelong and everlasting. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I mean, and that's what drove me 
to start with my colleague, Laura Coffer, the Prison of Peace Project, where in 2010, we started training. We started with 15 women serving life sentences in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, training them to be peacemakers to stop prison violence. And today it's, inter- it's a huge international organization. Yeah, uh, very powerful. All right, so let's get into what we actually were going to talk about. Um, okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, you, you talk about our, our mental makeup, okay? And the, the interplay between emotionality and rationality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, let me preface it by saying I teach a graduate course at, at Pepperdine Law School called Decision-Making Under Stress and Conflict. Okay. And teaching lawyers, basically graduate students, how to help their clients make better decisions under the stress and conflict of litigated disputes. It, and it turns out that, um, at, you know, what I've learned over the years is that we live under a huge myth. And that is that what separates humans from other species of animals is rationality and reasoning. That's what Aristotle said. And this goes all the way back to the Greeks. Um, and it, Modern neuroscience says that is all wrong. It's all a myth. We are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Hmm. And in fact, the science supports that. And in fact, if you even, even if you look even at a hard science like economics, even economists now recognize that the decision, there is no such thing as homeorationalis, right? We are, we, all decisions are influenced by emotions. And the fact is, I teach my students, you can't even be rational unless you're emotional first. Because how would you know to apply, say, critical thinking or quantitative analysis to a problem unless you had an emotional reaction that told you that there was a problem out there to be solved? Our, rash, our so-called rational mind cannot see problems. Hmm. It can only solve problems. The, pro- the way we see problems is by emotion. Okay, this, this makes so much sense. It's so simple. The, the idea of uh, until your emotions are moved, until, you, until you're uncomfortable, there's no problem. And then once you are uncomfortable, that's when the rational kicks in to say, I, I want to move more towards comfort. That's right. That, that's assuming that you've got a good override system. Right. Okay. <laughs> Which and, may, you may or may not have. Right. And let me just say I do another podcast. It's called Perspectives on Healthcare. And I had a Canadian guy on who was talking about patient safety and brought to the fore the fact that medical error is like the number three cause of death in the United States. Right. And part of the reason for that is because people, medical professionals, are under a tremendous amount of pressure and stress when they are making decisions. And as a result, they are making poor decisions and those are having a direct impact on patients. And that sounds exactly like what you're talking about. You're talking about it in the legal perspective, but it's the same thing in the medical perspective. And I'm that's correct. Yeah. And here's the, and the problem is this, it goes to, it goes, we've got this cultural bias against emotions. Now we have an educational system that is based on the edifice, the myth of, ra- uh, of rationality, which is a false myth. So it's a, really an edifice of sand. And as lawyers and doctors and engineers and all professional people schooling is all about teaching people how to be rational. And emotionality is dropped from the equation immediately. In fact, we're told being emotional is bad. And that's all wrong because we can't rely on we can't rely on rationality because we're always going to be emotional. And is, wouldn't it be better for us to develop emotional competency 
and master our emotions, not by suppression and repression, but by other skill sets, and then allow our whole being to, 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 to look at the problem, not just one small, tiny piece of thing we call rationality. And that's what I teach. And I teach people how to master their emotions, how to become emotionally competent. Okay. You, you've said that phrase now twice, emotionally competent or emotional competency. Tell me more about that. Can you, like, can you define that and then yes. or talk to me a little bit about what it looks like? Emotional competency consists of three basic skills, emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and empathy, cognitive and affective empathy. The way you learn emotional competency, interestingly enough, is by learning, how, learning the skill of cognitive empathy, which is a specific skill that I teach. By the way, you cannot learn emotional intelligence. There's, <laughs> there are a lot of shysters out there in the corporate training world that talk about, I'm going to increase your emotional intelligence. No, you can't do that. It's like saying, I can increase your IQ. I can increase your IQ tip. Emotional intelligence is a test. Mm. It's not a skill. The way you score well on emotional intelligence tests is by having high emotional competency. So you want to learn the skills of emotional competency to allow you to, to perform well and score high on an emotionally intelligent test. So you read all, this is a big thing in all the, the business magazines now about emotional, emotional intelligence. And these five, these leaders say these five things to show that they're emotionally intelligent. No, 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 no. None of that stuff shows emotional intelligence. What shows emotional intelligence is emotional competency, which is are skills that can be taught and mastered. But the skills are not, they're not, they're not intuitive. So you have to have a coach or a teacher teach you this stuff because although we have the ability to learn them, we have to be taught just like riding a bicycle and we have to practice. Okay. Um, you mentioned a phrase in there, cognitive empathy. Yes. Um, help me with that one too. Okay. Cognitive empathy is a technical word that describes the, the ability to read, assimilate, interpret, and reflect back the emotional experience of another human being. And you do this through a, process, a technical process known as affect labeling, which is really emotional reflection. And, and all you learn how to do is to tell another person how they're feeling, what they're feeling, mm. what, their, what their emotional experiences are. So I would say, Rob, you're, you're really excited right now. You're really happy. You're, you're, you feel, you're very engaged and, and you're very interested. That would be in a positive emotional reflection of your emotional experience in the moment. If somebody were angry, you would say, oh, man, Rob, you're really pissed off. You're really angry. You're frustrated. Nobody's listening to you. You don't feel appreciated. You feel completely ignored. And you're a little embarrassed. And you're anxious and concerned and worried. And you're sad. And you feel like you've been completely betrayed. So, and what brain scanning studies show is that when you engage in this process of affective labeling, which is cognitive empathy, the emotional centers of the brain are inhibited at the same time the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is activated. So literally, you calm down and begin to think again. And study after study shows this very interesting, unique effect in all human brains. So it's, it's not culturally based, it's, it's biologically based. And it has the effect of calming any emotional or angry person down in less than 90 seconds. Okay. Can you help me out here? Because you said, one of the things you said was the only way to get there is with a coach or a guide. Um, 
is there is there some small step that can be taken are there sure are, are there any practical guidelines that you can give Absolutely. us today to say like hey you so, know what um here here's a couple things you can do that's that are simple and baby steps right here's how i teach it and here's the exercise to practice First of all, don't ever don't ever take anything that I say at face value. It's this is experiential. You've got to put your lab coat on and you've got to become the laboratory experimenter and test it out for yourself. And the best way to test it out is in a low risk social system situation. My favorite laboratory is Starbucks. So you go into Starbucks and you're in line or not. You go up to the barista who's taking your order in your card and you look him in the eye and you say, hey, you look really happy today. Just say that and then put your lab metaphorical lab coat on. Get your clipboard out, metaphorically, and observe how they behave. And you will be amazed at what you see. And you do this over and over and over again. You do it, you do it at Starbucks. You do it for the checkout clerk at, the, at Sprouts or the grocery store. You do it with a restaurant server. If you do it with a restaurant server, you'll get the best service you've ever, ever had in your life. And basically what you are doing is you're testing out the idea of what it's like to listen another person into existence. Because this deep emotional listening validates people at a very, very, very deep level. They feel heard. They feel like you really understand them, that you get them, and they're extremely grateful. And at the same time that you practice this stuff, you are rewiring your own brain to become more emotionally self-aware, which then allows you to become to, to, to emotionally self-regulate. That's the power of it. Okay. Um let me just make sure I understand. I'm putting everything together that you've said. Okay. And it's not just saying to the barista at Starbucks, you look happy today. You are, you are looking at them and trying to read them. Correct. Uh, or to say, you look worried. You look irritated. You look correct. You, um, you're, you're not just saying, you're not try, trying to tell everybody like you look happy today and therefore you should be happy and, and give me better service because I said you were happy. No, it's, no, 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 it's no. accurately reflecting what you see going on with them. Correct. You are pro you're providing a deep service to this person by helping them become self-aware of their own emotional condition and their own emotional experience. Most people have no emotional self-awareness. There was a study done of 7,000 people and they were asked what they feel. And most people can only come up with three words, happy, sad, or pissed off. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's not being very emotionally aware, <laughs> right? I, okay, how do you handle when people when people don't react well to that? Okay, and, and let okay. me just give you an All example. Right. Can I give you an example? Absolutely. Uh, my wife comes home from work, and I say, well, "You look tired." And she, says, "Why is everybody telling me I look tired? I don't want to be, you know." And she she doesn't. What I'm sensing, whether or not it's real or not, um, I don't get the. There's a reason that she doesn't want to be that. Okay, so, so sometimes you'll get pushback. Now, tired is not an emotion; it's a physical okay. state. But right. but you could say you could say something like, "You look, you look, you, you know, you, you just had a really you had a really rough day. You're you're frustrated. You didn't feel supported. You felt unappreciated, and you know you you're just you're you're burned out, and you're anxious and worried." And she says, "Who the heck do you think you are? My psychotherapist?" <laughs> All right. When that doesn't happen very often, but it does happen, you 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 overdid it. You're too good, because what happens is um, most of us stop maturing emotionally at six years old, um, and 
and then we grow up into mature adults, physically mature, and we have all kinds of facades around us, but really we have a big wall around us to hide all of our emotional insecurities and pain and lack of emotional safety that we, we stopped experiencing at about six years of age. And almost every adult has this experience where deep inside themselves that they see themselves as being weak and emotional and carry all this pain and, and emotional baggage they've never really worked with. When you affect label somebody, you're like a superhero pushing through all of those walls. Okay. And all of a sudden, this person, even your wife, sees that you see them for who they really are. And it scares the crap out of them. And so they push back. They want to close that wound up as fast as they can. And so that's the pushback. So all you do is you back off, say, oh, sorry. And then come back a few minutes, a few, I mean, 15 or 20 minutes later, let the brain calm down a little bit. And you say, oh, you just, had, you just had a really rough day, totally unappreciated. Stop. And she'll say, yeah, exactly right. I can't believe how stupid they are. Right. Something like that, right? Sure. Okay. So let me just say, I've always had a theory that um, men stop maturing at, at like 12 because um, every guy, if you give him the right stimuli, it, it, like he, he giggles about stuff that a 12-year-old boy would find humorous. Um, but you're t- we're talking about a different understanding. You're talking about a, a emotional development. That, Correct. Um, and you're right. I think there are walls that are built around there, walls of protection, and you don't want to necessarily let anybody in. And, and just in a real brief, what do you think the reasons are why people are so afraid to let anybody in there? Well, number one, we have this cultural bias against emotions, right? The myth of rationality. Okay. Number two, because of that, our parents are not emotionally competent. And so they don't know how to teach us to be emotionally competent because they don't know themselves. They were just taught what they were taught by their parents. So this goes is passed on from this trained in capacity is passed on from generation to generation. And number three, um, because parents are not in control of their own emotions, they tend to invalidate their children's emotions. So, for example, remember when you were two or three years old, and you were out running around and you fell down and you skinned your knee and started to cry. You were told, stop crying. Be a big boy. Don't be a wussy. You know, big boys don't cry. Be a manly man. Stop being a sissy. Stuff like that. Every single one of those statements invalidates the experience you're having in that moment. And when that's fed to you for 18 years in your family, which it is, you learn to stuff your emotions. You learn that it is not emotionally safe to be your emotional self. And so you build up these barriers around you. And it happens for women, too, girls and women. And we, and we build all these barriers around because we learn that to express emotion in any way is dangerous hmm. and, and, and especially dangerous around our parents. So, we, so at around six years old, we stop feeling emotionally safe and we have to start building these walls. Okay. And it's devastating. Uh, very powerful. Listen, um, I could probably talk to you for quite some time, but we are out of time. If people <laughs> want to learn more about you, get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way? Um, I've built a webpage for everybody who's listening only for your show. And, and the web, the URL is HTTPS dougnoel.co slash smart dash people. Wonderful. I will make sure and include that in the show notes and, you know, folks encourage them to check you out. 
I'll just give out my email address too. I'm a solo practitioner. I have no staff, no, no none of that. Um, if you want to contact me, just email me at Doug at Doug Noll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. I'm, I answer all my own emails and I'm happy to respond to any questions that anybody who's listening to this might have. Fantastic. Doug, thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing. It's been an interesting conversation to say the least. It is now time for three questions to establish your humanity. Are you ready <laughs> okay. for these, my friend? I am ready. Okay. So when you were a little kid, who was your hero? Who did you look up to or want to be? That's a great question. I don't know that, again, because of my particular upbringing, I didn't have any many heroes that I could really look up to because because they were able to do things that I just was not able to do. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have any great hero. You know, a lot of people say, well, my dad, I love my dad, but he didn't, he couldn't support me emotionally. Okay. So I don't think I had any heroes growing up. Wow. I, and that's, it's such a difficult thing. It, it, and I, from where I'm coming from, I understand that when you're looking at other people and you understand th- they can do things that you can't. Um, and it's not from a superhero perspective where Superman can fly and I can't fly. It's a matter of you're looking at everyday ordinary people and they can do things that you can't. Um, That's which, right. Yeah. So very interesting. Um, what is the last movie that you either went to or that you watched? Oh my God. I watched less than one movie a year. Okay. I haven't owned a television set in 40 years. <laughs> I don't listen to the radio. Okay. Uh, I live in rural California on 10 acres in the central Sierra Nevada. And my wife and I both have very busy professional practices. And we um, try to keep our minds clean. <laughs> I read a lot. Okay. I, listen to, I listen to audiobooks a lot. Um, All right. Well, yeah, I'll then- tell you, the one, movie, the one movie that keeps sticking in my mind, and this wasn't the most recent movie, but, but the but although I understand Cameron's coming out with a massive sequel, was Avatar. Okay. That was the worst movie I had ever seen. There you go. I, I was going to ask. For a whole bunch of different reasons that we don't have time to get into. But it was, it, I, I walked out saying, what a piece of crap. There you go. Well, um, the Siskel and the Ebert, the Doug and Rob apparently gives it two <laughs> thumbs down. So, right. Um, gosh. All right. So you're out in California and. When it comes to food, are you uh, a like California vegan, uh, or are you? Where do you sit in the um, the food continuum that is California? I'm an omnivore, and I really I'm a chef, okay. uh, and so I do all the cooking, and I love um, cooking different kinds of food. I love baking. I have my own sourdough starter, make my own sourdough bread. Um, but you know, the beauty about living in California is not only do we pull everything out, we have a year round gardens here. So we're pulling out vegetables all, all year long and everything's organic and fresh. So I love making dishes with the stuff that we pull out of our garden and what, and what we can you know, substitute or supplant in our local markets, where, which are all incredible food compared to what people see on the East Coast, for example. And, and I just love taking that food and, and mixing it with you know, quinoa and chicken and yeah, you know, cool fish, right. fresh right. fish. So, one word description. Uh, my favorite cooking style is 
California, what's known as the California style, which is Mediterranean. Okay. So that would be that would be lots of olive oil, fresh, cooked vegetables, you know, small amounts of meat, um, not a lot of red meat, but uh, but we do eat lamb and occasionally beef, okay. but chicken and fish and turkey and, um, you know, we make our, I make my own stock, chicken stock, and so fantastic in the wintertime. Sounds good. Hey, listen, Doug Noel, thank you so much for being with me. You are indeed smart. You are indeed a person. And I appreciate your willingness to share. For all my listeners, thank you for being here today. And I will remind you, as always, that when you stop learning, you stop living. Have a great day, everybody. 